back to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. Thank you for bearing with me through this long series. It has been an intense amount of work, but I've learned so much, and I hope that you guys have enjoyed it. We finally made it to the final chapter in the story. Just have a couple of things to mention before we get into it. This will be my third year in a row doing a collaborative Halloween episode. And I'm seeking submissions from listeners and fellow podcast hosts to submit stories of a true nature that is something that just terrifies you. It can be from pretty much any realm in life, whether true crime or history or something else entirely, just as long as it's true. I'll be putting these all into one big episode to be released on Halloween. So I hope that you guys send in your submissions. There's no real time length specifics just hopefully it's at least a few minutes long not just one sentence and you can get those to me at my email address midnightsunmurder at gmail and i'd like to have them all by i'd say the 29th and if you have any questions feel free to drop me a line as well next up i've got a promo for one of my personal favorite true crime podcasts obscura i hope that you'll give it a listen He tells interesting stories in his own unique voice, and it's one that I always rush to listen to right when a new one gets released. This is Justin from Obscura, a true crime podcast. Do you like single-host, narrative-driven true crime that isn't afraid to get graphic? On Obscura, we paint a picture of the lives of the criminals and victims before telling a story of the crime and how it unfolded. Add atmospheric production and audio clips such as 911 calls, and you have an idea of what we're about. If that intrigues you, type Obscura True Crime into your favorite podcatcher. You can't miss our logo. And we'll see you by the fire. As usual, this episode is brought to you by my wonderful and lovely patrons. A massive thanks to all of you, especially my newest patron, Rick. Patrons at every level will be receiving some Halloween goodies at the end of this month, since it's my favorite holiday. They also get access to bonus episodes, the next of which I hope to get out in the next 2 to 17 weeks. (laughs) Now that this arduous undertaking is done, I feel like a single crime narrative is going to be so much easier. If you'd like to support the show, click the link in the show notes. And if you'd like to do a one-time donation, there's a PayPal link for that. All donors will receive stickers and other goodies. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into the meat of the episode. First, I wanted to briefly discuss a terrifying Anchorage case that has been huge in headlines all over the world in the last couple of days. On the morning of October 2nd, The body of a Jane Doe was found at mile marker 108 of the Seward Highway, close to Beluga Point. This is a highway that runs south of Anchorage for hundreds of miles, leading to several different communities. The location where the body was found is approximately 20 miles south of Anchorage, where the highway overlooks Turnigan Arm on one side and is flanked by the Chugiak Mountains on the other side. Essentially, it's a busy area. People are often stopping on the side of the highway to look at wildlife in the water and the mountains, and it's just not really a place that you would leave a body that you didn't want found. 
Just a few days later, on the afternoon of October 8th, police arrested 48-year-old Brian Stephen Smith at Ted Stevens International Airport as he returned to Anchorage. They revealed to the public the shocking details that led to the arrest. On September 30th, a woman contacted the police stating that she had found an SD card with graphic imagery. The card was labeled Homicide at the Midtown Marriott, and when she was able to view the contents, she was shocked to see numerous photos and videos of a naked woman being assaulted and strangled. When law enforcement viewed the footage, they were actually able to recognize the man from an unrelated case due to his prominent South African accent. The woman in the images was the Jane Doe that had been found on October 2nd, and she has subsequently been identified as 30-year-old Kathleen Henry, an Alaska Native resident of Anchorage, originally from the small town of Eek. Since his arrest, Smith has been charged with first-degree murder for the death of Henry. The description from the photos and videos of the crime tell of a torturous and brutal murder committed by a monster. They showed not only the crime, but the aftermath, including images of a woman being taken out of a hotel on a luggage cart and being transported in the back of a truck. Date stamps show that the murder took place on September 4th. Hotel information showed that Brian Smith had rented a room there from September 2nd through the 4th, and his cell phone data showed that he was in the same location as the body dump site within mere minutes of the timestamp on the last photo, which was around 1 a.m. on September 6th. The photos also show the exterior of the black pickup truck. Smith is a white South African that has resided in Anchorage for many years with his wife, a former U.S. immigration officer. The couple has been together since 2013, and they have a black 1999 Ford Ranger pickup truck. Based on all the evidence, it seems quite likely that Smith is a murderer, and he just so happened to document it for easy solving by the police. And as a true crime aficionado, I can't think of a case in which someone like this waits until they're nearly 50 to commit their first murder. It makes one wonder what he may have been running from back home in South Africa. One of the articles I read for this story dug up an old Facebook post of his in which he says some really nasty, racist, derogatory things about black South Africans. So I have to wonder if Kathleen's ethnicity may have had something to do with why he targeted her. He is currently incarcerated with a $500,000 bail awaiting trial. I will definitely keep you updated as this case progresses. It's just another example of horrific violence being inflicted on an Alaska Native woman. And I for one hope that the fucker rots in prison. And I don't think I'm alone in that. Now let's get back into World War II, the final episode, the big climactic battle. Ross and Rachel get married. First, I wanted to mention some sources I used primarily for this episode. Along with the Brian Garfield book, I also used The Capture of Attu, a World War II battle told by the men who fought there, compiled by Robert Mitchell, Sewell Ting, and Nelson Drummond. 
All of these writers were military men that were involved in the Aleutian campaign, and the book also contains narratives told to Lieutenant Robert Mitchell by many of the men involved in the final conflict. This book was a project supervised by the Military Intelligence Division. There were also a few documentaries I watched while researching this. The first one is called Red, White, Black, and Blue, and it came out in 2007. It's the story of a couple of vets of the Battle of Attu returning to the island 60 years later. It was a truly excellent documentary, and it really made the events seem so much more real by learning the personal stories of some of the men involved. The other documentary I watched actually was filmed during the war. In the fall of 1942, legendary director John Huston, who directed many beloved classics, including my personal favorite of his, The African Queen, came up to the Aleutians as a member of the Signal Corps to shoot a documentary about the action up north. Coincidentally, he also directed The Maltese Falcon, based on the Dashiell Hammett book, though it doesn't appear as though the two were in Alaska at the same time. But the result of his efforts is a 44-minute documentary called Report from the Aleutians, and it's actually available on Netflix and Amazon Prime. It was a really good visual aid to the sometimes very dry historical research, and there was a ton of, you know, footage of the men back then, which, I don't know, I always find it interesting because I'm a history nerd. <laughs> so some of you might like it in, as well. It was also nominated for an Oscar for Best Documentary, but I think that they legally had to do that for any World War II movie during World War II. On a side note to fellow cinephiles, I found out that along with John Huston and Dashiell Hammett, many other huge celebrities visited the Aleutians to boost the troop's spirits. Among them were Bob Hope, Ingrid Bergman, Olivia de Havilland, Errol Flynn, and many more. I thought that was pretty interesting. And if you're over 80, you might as well. When we last left off, 1942 was coming to a close, and with the new year came some big changes within officer ranks in Alaska. In early January, Fuzzy Theobald's replacement was brought to Alaska, Rear Admiral Thomas Kincaid, not to be confused with the super bland mass market painter. By the time Kincaid ended up in Alaska, he was already 55 and had been in the Navy since 1908. He fought in World War I and other conflicts before World War II. Prior to the Aleutian Campaign, he was involved in other major battles of World War II, including the Battle of Midway. He was a decisive man that acted on instincts well honed after decades in the Navy. But to military brass, his greatest trait was his ability to form a symbiotic working relationship with Buckner, something that Theobald had been incapable of. His overall mission was, of course, to drive the Japanese out of the Aleutians. One of the first things that he did when he arrived in Alaska was to draft up plans to invade Kiska for approval from the War Department. The landing groups were to be made up of men from the 17th Infantry Division, the 32nd Division, and the 7th Motorized Division. 
Some of these troops had previously fought Rommel in North Africa, and all of them had trained primarily for fighting in hot climates, while the 7th Motorized Division had been training with tanks and other land-based vehicles. So who better to do an amphibious landing in Alaska? Military resources were stretched extremely tight, and the powers that be decided that these divisions would be the best men for the job instead of, you know, any of the thousands of troops that had already spent months fighting in the Aleutians. However, the Alaska scouts would be joining them and Erickson would be in charge of the air portion of the invasion. Several high-ranking officers, including Erickson, Kolklo, and Kastner, went to San Diego to meet and work on the invasion plan. After a lot of debate, they agreed that Based on the number of troops and supplies they would likely have available, they would instead attempt to invade Attu, which had far less Japanese soldiers on it. They also thought that once the Americans had taken Attu, the troops left on Kiska would realize they were completely surrounded and would just evacuate. The invasion would be known as Operation Land Crab for some reason, and it was set to commence May the 7th, 1943. The troops involved would spend the next three months gearing up for the Aleutian invasion by practicing landing and invasion in California, which you may recognize is not similar in any way to the Aleutians. And it really didn't give them practical experience in regards to the terrain and environment or anything really other than there's water in both places. While these troops were training in California, Kincaid was busy executing offensive maneuvers toward the ultimate goal of forcing the Japanese out of Alaska. One big part of the plan was to get American troops as close to the Japanese as possible. As I previously mentioned, the Alaska scouts had done reconnaissance on Amchika Island as a possible base. It would be a risky proposition since the island was only a couple dozen miles from Kiska, but just a day after arriving in Alaska, Kincaid ordered the move. Within a few days, 2,000 American troops were headed to Amchika to establish another base. The weather was beyond terrible with constant blizzards, terrible wind, and horrible visibility. But within just a few short weeks of landing on the island, a runway had been built. Another step towards ending the campaign was to cut off as much of the supply chain for the Japanese as possible and a small dedicated fleet headed as far east as the Kurils to watch for and hopefully sink as many Japanese supply ships as possible. The Japanese had already been running quite low on supplies for the last few months, and with the new determination of the Americans to block all incoming ships, the situation rapidly deteriorated further. And it's really hard not to feel empathy for their situation because it sounds like a complete nightmare. There had been losses on both sides, but the Japanese had undeniably experienced much worse loss and were beginning to flounder. They had around 8,000 troops left in the game after having lost approximately 4,000 over the last several months. They continued to struggle to build a usable runway on Attu while being continuously bombed. And with their resources being stretched thin between the various battles recurring throughout the Pacific, 
and their supply line being continuously ambushed. Reinforcement air and sea craft were pretty much impossible to come by, and they were running dangerously low on pretty much everything else, including food. They really were just barely hanging in there, and it was mostly thanks to their arsenal of anti-aircraft guns, which allowed them to maintain a defensive perimeter. And while so far it had been a conflict of slow attrition, it would soon be dramatically intensifying. And the saddest part is at this point, the officers were just ready to get out of there. Everybody wanted to go home, but strict orders had come from on high to hold their ground no matter what, and it was about to get so much worse for them. By March, the Japanese were getting extremely desperate. They were just starving. Admiral Hosegaya, who commanded the Japanese North Pacific Fleet, came up with a bold plan to get through the blockade. He decided to load several ships full of supplies and bring along some battleships to act as escort and defense. And unbeknownst to anyone, his decision was about to lead him to a historical moment in world warfare. Enter Admiral Charles Horatio McMorris of Alabama. He was 53 and a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. He was known by the nickname Sock, short for Socrates, based on his high level of intelligence and nearly photographic memory. He had fought in World War I and was involved in the 1914 occupation of Veracruz, which was part of the Banana Wars. A fun name, but not a fun conflict, which involved the U.S., Central America, and the Caribbean. He had also been involved in other battles of World War II and had already received the Navy Cross, which is the second highest military decoration. When he later died, about a decade later at age of 63, the warship USS McMorris would be named in his honor. March 26, 1943 was to be the defining moment of his distinguished military career. That day, he was leading a fleet of four destroyers and one cruiser in search of enemy supply ships. He had detected them on his radar and had gone a few hundred miles west to look for them. He was near the Komandorsky Islands of Russia. When McMorris's fleet finally spotted the supply ships they had been tracking, they realized their mistake. The supply ships were accompanied by nine Japanese warships. And when they were within 10 miles of each other, the warships opened fire. As both fleets took aim with both guns and torpedoes, they were also attempting to elude the enemy fire coming fast and furious from the other side. Both sides attempted to call for backup aircraft, but none arrived. And because of that, this would be the last time in history in which a battle was fought entirely between battleships. The Americans were the underdogs in this battle in every way. They had fewer battleships and the ones they did have were old and not very good at maneuvering quickly. After over an hour of trying to elude enemy gunfire and torpedoes, the cruiser Salt Lake City had been hit by torpedoes and was nearly dead in the water and barely moving. The crew was trying their damnedest to get the craft moving again rather than abandon ship and the other American ships were providing defensive fire and a smokescreen. But strangely enough, the Japanese chose that moment to rapidly exit the conflict. They'd had no idea that 
the Salt Lake City was on its last legs, and due to a miscommunication, they thought American bombers were on the way to start attacking them, so they got the hell out of there. It was a huge stroke of luck for the Americans, of course. After more than three hours total of trying to outmaneuver and evade the enemy, the battle was over just like that. There were a few casualties on either side, but no major losses, and the damage to the Salt Lake City was repairable. The Japanese fleet had turned back towards home, and none of the supplies made it to the troops. And from then on, no further supply ships would even make it that far. The conflict seemed to be winding down at this point, but it was going to end with a bang and not a whimper. The May 7th invasion date was looming closer, and there was so much work to be done. Initially, it was thought that there were around 500 Japanese troops on Attu, but intelligence received just prior to the invasion date showed there were more like 2,600. They were going to be invaded by approximately four times as many Americans. The entire operation was kept a huge secret, even from the men that would be involved. They wouldn't even find out where they were going until they were already at sea headed north. It wasn't even until they actually reached Alaska one week prior to the date of invasion that they began to get training accurate to the environment. That week, the Americans learned that there had been some sort of security leak, and not only were national news agencies mentioning the planned invasion, but messages between the Japanese were decoded to reveal that they were on high guard after learning about the possible invasion of that too. Then the Americans got another stroke of luck thanks to terrible weather. The seas were awful and the invasion was delayed for several days. And by the new date of invasion, May 11th, the Japanese had finally relaxed after several days on high alert. They decided the warning must have been a false alarm and thus it was perfect timing for the invasion to actually kick off. Because of the terrain on the island, the invasion was going to be done entirely on foot once the men had made it there via boat. These troops that had spent their time in the military training and fighting mostly in the desert were about to get a taste of the worst that Alaska had to offer. The plan was for there to be multiple landing forces at various points around the island, each with their own specific directive. The first landing force was called the Southern Force, led by Colonel Edward Earl. They would be landing at Massacre Bay. Their mission was to head straight across the island and seize Jarman Pass, where a large number of Japanese troops were embedded, then to join forces with the Northern Force and drive the Japanese back to Holtz Bay, where they would be completely pinned in. The North Force, led by Colonel Albert Hartle, would be landing at Red Beach. They would then be circling the island toward Holtz Bay and coming in on the backside of German Pass to meet up with the Southern Force. The irony of the names of these two landing points did not escape the notice of the troops. A subsidiary force consisting of Alaska Scouts and led by William Willoughby would be landing at Austin Cove and circling around to the other side of Holtz Bay. Another subsidiary force, led by Colonel Frank Collin, would be awaiting at sea 
to provide reinforcements to the first waves of troops when needed. The one thing that the Japanese really had going for them in this battle was that there were lots of mountainous areas on the island, and the Japanese forces had long since retreated to higher ground and would have much better visibility of the incoming Americans than vice versa. Another issue specific to the Aleutians that had caused continuous issues and would be a big problem during the invasion was communication breakdown. With all of these separate entities operating independently of one another, communication would be imperative to ensure that all of the groups were functioning cohesively, but good communication was hard to come by in the Aleutians. And because of that and many other factors, this operation was going to be much more difficult and time-consuming than expected. The original target was to run the Japanese out within three days of initial landfall. But the ensuing battle would prove just how foolishly optimistic that time frame had been. By late afternoon on May 11th, the northern and southern forces had both successfully made landfall, bringing the number of Americans on shore to 4,000. The huge howitzer guns brought by the Americans had landed as well, and all had immediately become so bogged down in the muddy tundra of the beach that they could be not, not be moved any further inland and would have to be fired from where they stood. Eventually, the guns were positioned so they could be fired at what looked like enemy activity on distant ridges. And by that night, the roar of gunfire broke the quiet on the island and the Battle of Attu was underway. The southern force would be heading straight towards the enemy who were embedded in the cliffs above. They were quickly spotted by the Japanese and were soon completely pinned down by enemy gunfire, making little to no headway for hours at a time. Unbeknownst to the Japanese, Captain Willoughby, group of a few hundred scouts, was slowly making their way up behind them while they were distracted by the huge southern force. The scout battalion would end up spending a couple nights by Uvact in the freezing mountains, trying to get as close as they could to the Japanese without being noticed, all without having more than about one day's worth of food, not really much proper gear, and not enough ammunition. They were truly in the worst situation out of all of the American troops, and they would be hit extremely hard during the battle. They would eventually go from their starting number of 420 down to just 165 men by the end of this battle. But their role wasn't an important one. They were there as a distraction for the Japanese so that the larger forces could maneuver in closer. Colonel Hartle's northern force landed at Red Beach. The geography of this spot made it an odd choice for a landing. It was a tiny strip of land surrounded by jutting cliffs on all sides. The Americans had guessed that the spot would not be defended because the Japanese probably wouldn't believe anyone in their right mind would do a large-scale landfall at such a dumb location. An initial scout reconnaissance proved that this guess was correct, and so 1,500 troops would be making an arduous, exhausting, amphibious landing there, where they would then have to immediately start climbing the 100-plus feet cliffs with all of their gear. But they would be able to do it slowly and carefully with no enemy in sight. Along with the infantrymen on shore with the howitzers and their handheld weapons, the Japanese were also going to be fired at with long-range weapons from offshore battleships, as well as, optimistically, from the sky when there was enough visibility. 
Erickson would end up spending every day in the air leading a bomber squadron, just waiting until it was the right time to strike. But unfortunately for him, he wouldn't have that big of a role in this battle because of the fog. Just one day into the battle on May 12th, Colonel Earl headed out with an Alaskan scout to do some reconnaissance. When they didn't come back, troops went looking for them, and they found Colonel Earl dead from enemy gunfire. The scout was found badly injured, but still alive, lying near Earl's body. It was a huge loss, but there was no time to mourn, and Colonel Earl was quickly replaced with Colonel Wayne Zimmerman to command the Southern force. By the end of that second day, Earl was just one of nearly 60 Americans killed in the battle so far, and none of the forces had really made much progress towards their ultimate objective yet. It had also quickly become glaringly obvious that many of the men had not been outfitted properly for the terrain and temperature. There had not been enough adequate cold weather gear available for all of the men, and many of them were wearing leather boots, which were absolutely not warm enough for the Aleutians. This lack of adequate gear, especially footwear, would end up causing lifelong issues for many survivors. Trench foot, which is a condition caused by continued exposure to a cold, wet environment, would become extremely prevalent among the invading troops. This can be a really serious issue and it can lead to permanent nerve damage, gangrene and inability to walk, and in the worst cases, partial or full amputation of the foot. Even though it was summer, it was still quite cold and snowy, especially up in the mountains. And the adverse effects of the cold weather could come on quite quickly. And in just the first few days of the battle, hundreds of Americans would end up visiting medics for these types of injuries. By the end of the battle, thousands would be affected by hypothermia, frostbite, trench foot, and other ailments. That same day, General Brown began attempting to contact command to request the last subsidiary force to be sent to Attu from where they had been waiting for instructions near ADAC. But because of poor communications in the islands, it would be a few days before he would receive a response. A Japanese intelligence memo was intercepted that the Japanese were sending naval reinforcements to the battle, and so it became a race to bring in more reinforcements but also to as clear as many men and supplies from the beach areas as they could. The beach was completely crowded and confusing, full of troops and supplies, with supply ships waiting out at sea until there was a spot that they could land and unload. By the third day, the Americans had still barely gained much ground. They were continuously being pinned down by enemy gunfire coming from invisible shooters up on high peaks and camouflaged by fog. Even if it had not been foggy, the Japanese were shooting with smokeless gunpowder, which made them that much harder to spot. It was obvious to everyone that the initial estimate of a three-day battle had been pretty silly, and that this thing was going to drag on for much longer. By the end of the day, however, some progress was finally made. Willoughby scouts made a heroic push forward, and they were able to get the Japanese off the peak they had been camped on for the last few days. It was intense, close combat fighting with machine guns and grenades, and by the end of the several hour long skirmish, Willoughby's men had succeeded in getting the Japanese to retreat off the peak. It was the first real sign of forward progress in the battle. 
Late that night, the reinforcement battalion Brown had requested finally made landfall at Red Beach and joined up with the Northern Force, which was being led now by both Colonel Cullen and Colonel Hartle. Now that they had the fresh troops to join them, the Northern Force began to plan their attack on the main Japanese camp at Hulls Bay, which would coincide with an attack by the Southern Force on the other side. On the fifth day, General Brown requested more backup troops to be sent from ADAC. He was especially concerned after having heard about the memo involving possible Japanese naval reinforcements. But he got a response from his superiors telling him that the beach needed to be cleared before any more reinforcements could be sent. Brown was angry because not only did he feel like he really needed more men, but there were also still the supply ships waiting to unload many items that his men were in dire need of, such as food, ammunition. Many of the items taking up space on the beach were completely mired down in mud and would take an immense amount of time and effort to get out of the way. Meanwhile, Brown was surrounded by starving, freezing men. He was in a really shitty situation. He attempted to send written summaries to Kincaid, but they were lost in transport, unbeknownst to either side of the communications. That same day, the Northern force led by Colin again attempted in advance towards the enemy in Holtz Bay and realized that they had finally retreated far back to a distant ridge, leaving behind guns, ammunition, and food. When they retreated, it also allowed Willoughby and his scout platoon to finally make contact with and join up with the Northern force. Kincaid and Buckner had become very frustrated with Brown, but it was mostly due to communication issues rather than his actual value as a commander. On the morning of day six, they decided that he wasn't up to the role he was in, and they made the very surprising and bold move to replace him mid-battle with General Landrum. Brown was shocked and frustrated when the high command refused to give him any reason, and so he was stuck holding the front line, waiting for his replacement to arrive. Colonel Collins' men continued to make steady forward progress, first into Holtz Bay, and then into the peaks surrounding. At 12 a.m. on the seventh day, Cullen decided to press his luck and keep pushing the Northern force forward until they managed to force the Japanese to retreat further. The Americans now had about 13,000 troops ashore, having lost about 1,000 to death and injury so far. They were facing up against a Japanese force that had drastically dwindled down to less than one-sixth of their size. The only position they still held in the mountains overlooking Holtz Bay was Jarman Pass, but they were quickly becoming surrounded. While Cullen's troops got closer, the Japanese troops left in Jarman Pass decided it was time to get out of there and they stealthily evacuated overnight. They headed towards the peaks overlooking Chickagoff Harbor. By the end of that day, General Brown had left the Aleutians and been replaced by General Landrum. Brown would end up later being cleared of any wrongdoing and the military would admit that he should not have been relieved of his post in Attu. He would later lead a division in Europe during the last year of the war. And of all of the officers I've read about so far, he lived to be the oldest. He died in 1984 at the age of 95. So I guess you could say that he got the last laugh. On the ninth day, the last subsidiary reinforcement group arrived and there were now 16,000 Americans in the battle. 
There was finally an end in sight, but the men were broken down and exhausted. The officers especially were suffering from months of high stress. General Landrum was actually recovering from a broken leg and could not perform all of his duties, so odd choice for replacement there. Kastner was dying of cancer, and he was only able to view the events from afar. Erickson was actually shot at and nicked by a sniper bullet, but it didn't do too much damage to him. Out of all the officers I've read about, I think he might be my favorite. Now, during the battle, there had been continuous patrolling of the water around Attu by American boats, most of which ran out of ammunition within the first few days. But there were dozens of them, up to 40 at a time, and they hoped their numbers would keep any small Japanese fleet from approaching. Admiral Kawasi had been leading a tiny Japanese fleet staying far west of Attu and awaiting commands from on high. The Japanese on shore were getting desperate as the Americans steadily advanced on them until their backs were getting up to the sea. They were hoping for evacuation via ship or submarine and were left in limbo waiting to see if rescue was heading their way. The Japanese eventually decided to send reinforcements in the form of a dozen bombers, but they did no real damage and weren't there very long. By the 12th day, a large proportion of the remaining Japanese troops was deeply embedded on a peak called Fishhook Ridge. Led by Colonel Yamasaki, they had a large amount of anti-aircraft guns, and because of this, they were able to hold the ridge for six days against the advances of thousands of Americans. The remaining few hundred Japanese now held just one tiny piece of the island they had held for the past year. Their code of honor taught them to fight to the death rather than to surrender. So while the Americans urged them to surrender via plane by dropping communications, they would choose to die fighting. They knew that there was no rescue on the way and every man knew they were going to die that day, or at least within the next few days. They were horribly outnumbered at this point, 14,000 Americans to approximately 800 Japanese. And once they received final confirmation that there was no evacuation boat coming for them anymore, they had their final objective to just fight to the death. At the end of the 18th day, Colonel Yamasaki had made the decision for his remaining men. Those in hospital were to commit suicide and all men that could still stand were going to attempt a dangerous nighttime push forward. Their plan was to get to some of the American supplies and big guns and give themselves more time to wait for rescue. They would fight to the very end if they had to, rather than sit and wait to be slaughtered or to do dishonor to their homeland by surrendering. That day, hundreds of wounded and dying Japanese troops were given fatal doses of morphine. Those that remained were so low on supplies that many were armed merely with bayonets and knives as they began a dark and silent march through enemy territory that night. They came upon a small group of Americans consisting of 16 scouts and officers, and all but four of them were quickly and brutally dispatched. One of the survivors was Captain Willoughby, who had been strafed by machine gun fire and been hit with shrapnel from a grenade, but still survived. Yamasaki's plan was to get to the American howitzer guns. He pretty much knew it was a futile effort, but just had to try. On the way, they killed any American they came across, including those that lay wounded in medics' tents. 
During their march, the Americans had become aware of their approach, and they were ready. As the Japanese got within a few hundred yards of the big guns on Engineer Hill, they attempted a bonsai charge and were met by a wave of American soldiers. This led to a quick and violent hand-to-hand -hand conflict involving bayonets, knives, and grenades. Sixty Americans died, and the Japanese were pushed back again. Yamasaki had survived, and he kept trying to rally the troops to try again, but they were so beaten down and exhausted and completely hopeless. Hundreds of them would commit suicide that day rather than be taken alive or slaughtered. Finally, Yamasaki and a very small group attempted one last run at the weapons, but they were doomed and most died in the onslaught of gunfire. 19 days in, the Battle of Attu was finally over. Around 30 Japanese POWs were captured. There were small clusters of Japanese troops that were still hidden on ridges throughout the island, and many would stay concealed for the next several weeks until they were either captured or gave up or killed themselves. American troops dug mass graves and buried the 2,300 Japanese bodies they found and the 650 Americans. In terms of proportionate loss, the Battle of Attu ended up being second only to Iwo Jima out of all of the battles fought by the Americans in the Pacific. The physical devastation to the survivors was overwhelming, and many would go on to have lifelong physical ailments along with mental illnesses. Once Attu was successfully taken, American High Command figured it was only a matter of time before the Japanese evacuated Kiska and left the Aleutians entirely. In the meantime, Kincaid and Buckner had a plan to keep pushing forward until they completed their goal of invading Japan. Military engineers were busily building an airfield on the tiny, uninhabited, nearby island of Shimia. They also quickly and easily completed a task that the Japanese had never been able to finish. They built an airfield on Attu, along with a submarine base. Unlike most of the men involved, Buckner and Kincaid did not seem to be exhausted after this long, tiring campaign. They were full speed ahead on their idea to invade Japan in a year. And there was a lot of work to be done to complete that mission. Even though the Aleutian campaign was winding down, the military continued to bring men and supplies into Alaska in large amounts. And as the summer of 1943 got underway, many of the Naval and Air Force troops still stationed in the Aleutians continued their year-long daily bomb raids on Kiska, hoping to drive the Japanese out once and for all. The next step forward in the minds of the command was to get closer to Japanese home territory. And so the Air Force began to plan a bombing raid on Paramashiro in the Kurils, 600 miles from Attu. It would be the first time Americans would launch an attack on Japanese territory from U.S. territory. The first group made the attempt, but they did not have an adequate map. They ended up dropping a large amount of bombs on an unknown location, and since neither Russia or Japan ever mentioned the bombing, no one ever figured out where they had attacked. On July 18th, there was a second attempt, and six bombers headed out of Adak en route to Paramushiru. By the time they made their way back home over 12 hours later, they had traveled a route of 1,700 miles 
and successfully bombed the massive Japanese base. They had completely taken them by surprise and encountered almost no resistance. It had been an incredible success and caused a large amount of damage to various buildings on the base as well as ships and aircraft. A month later, they repeated the raid with nine American bombers, only to be greeted by dozens of Japanese Zeros ready to vigorously defend their territory. Despite being outnumbered, the Americans only lost one plane and the other eight managed to make it home safely. But without the element of surprise, it had not been a very successful mission. There were still 6,000 Japanese troops on Kiska. The Japanese command wanted to evacuate them but their only option was using their few submarines because the Americans continued to block all incoming ships from Japan. Much like the doomed troops at Attu, those left on Kiska were feeling incredibly isolated and losing hope that they would escape with their lives. And they were being bombed literally hundreds of times a month that summer, which only added to their desperation. They were being bombed both from the air and from battleships just off the coast, and it began to feel like there was nowhere to hide to get out of this nightmare. They attempted a couple of small evacuations, but all of these ships were sunk either due to the weather or American attack. In late July, Japanese High Command came up with a bold evacuation plan, and on July 21st, the plan was executed. Over a dozen ships headed to Kiska with the plan of launching an attack on the enemy while part of the fleet would use the distraction to evacuate the troops. A few days later, the Japanese troops finally had a big stroke of luck, when something strange and inexplicable happened, which turned out to save a lot of lives. The American fleet providing the barricade to the island became distracted by and pursued what they saw on their radar as seven enemy sea craft. The fleet spent hours pursuing and firing at the foreign craft before they just completely disappeared off the radar. The Navy was never able to figure out what had caused the radar to pick up the Phantom ships, and they never found any evidence that there had actually been any vessels at all in the area. They eventually blamed it on a radar glitch, but the strangest part is that the glitch affected multiple ships identically they all noted the crafts as being at about the same location. But the outcome to this possible ghost collusion was that the Americans were distracted enough to not see the actual Japanese ships heading towards Kiska. And on July 28th, 13 large ships arrived at the island and managed to successfully evacuate the 5,200 men that still remained there. They took almost nothing with them and destroyed and burned anything they had left behind. I'm guessing they also just flipped the island off. I would have. The Americans had not noticed their evacuation, and they continued to bomb Kiska for the next few weeks. The island was completely swaddled in fog, so they couldn't tell that it was actually deserted. Eventually, they began to suspect that the Japanese may have evacuated, but still planned to make an invasion on August 15th. They considered sending some Alaskan scouts ashore to check out the island first, but finally decided that this would be too dangerous for the men. So instead, they continued with their plan to match a massive, full-scale invasion of an empty island. The plan included 35,000 Allied troops, you heard that right, mostly American, but also some of which were French-Canadian troops, 
and the invasion did take place on the 15th of August with 100 ships full of men. The men would spend the next eight days trekking all over the island, often stumbling blindly in the heavy fog. And despite it being a one-sided fight, there were still casualties. Over 100 men died during this time as a result of a shipwreck, booby traps left behind, and friendly fire in the impenetrable fog. I can't imagine how awful it would be to learn that your loved one died during this completely unnecessary military endeavor. After about a year of combat and the intense Battle of Attu, the bizarre invasion at Kiska was an anticlimactic way to wrap up the Aleutian campaign. While High Command tried to optimistically see it as a training opportunity, it ended up being a very costly exercise, both in terms of money and lives. Buckner and Kincaid were ready to keep going and follow this volley with an invasion of Paramashiru. But American High Command wanted to wait to do that after Stalin had agreed to declare war on Japan as well, thinking it'd be a lot easier that way. Buckner stuck around in Alaska for several more months before being transferred to Hawaii. In the end, he would get his wish to invade Japan when he was involved in the Battle of Okinawa in 1945, where he would die along with 12,000 other Americans and 100,000 Japanese. Most of the men that had been stationed in the Aleutians during the Japanese invasion were eventually rotated out and the numbers would dwindle over the years but there would still continue to be servicemen on the island for a long time to come. Buckner's role had been taken over by General Johnson, who continued to wait for Stalin to join up in the war against Japan. He thought that this would make an American invasion on Japan from the north just much more realistic. American pilots continued to bomb and harass the base at Paramashiru. Because of this, the base was continually kept on their toes expecting an invasion any day. This led to there being thousands of Japanese stationed there instead of being used as reinforcements and other more important theaters of war. So it worked out somewhat. By the time Stalin got around to declaring war in Japan, it was August 1945 and far too late for an American invasion of Japan. It was actually a few days after we had already bombed Hiroshima and we were one week out from Japan surrendering. Good job, Stalin. Way to come in at the last minute. By the end of the Aleutian campaign, 2,000 Americans had either been killed in action or missing in action. Most of these missing would never be found due to being lost at sea. About 4,500 Japanese troops had died in action with countless others going missing. That's a huge number of lives to lose during the squabble over small pieces of land, a fight that was never really more than a matter of national pride. There wasn't really any tactical reason for it. It's even sadder to realize how few people even know about this grueling conflict that took so much out of the troops involved, on both sides. The campaign would have a ripple effect on thousands of people for years to come. The native residents of Attu were not allowed to return there after the war. Even if they had been allowed, pretty much everything on the island had been destroyed. Many of them went to live in Atka and other nearby Aleutian communities. The only residents of the island after the war were the men who worked at a naval station that was located in Massacre Bay for a few decades. 
Attu and other Aleutian Islands would also play a role in the Cold War, harboring long-range radar stations for the U.S. government to watch for any Soviets flying too close to us. Since the naval station closed in 2010, the island has become entirely uninhabited. It lies abandoned as a relic of the past, with many items remaining left over from World War II, and the place has been designated as both a National Historic Landmark and a wildlife refuge. There were many events last summer of 2018 to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Attu. One of these involved several descendants of Attu residents who were able to visit the island and see where their family lived before the war. It was an amazing experience for them and they placed a cross at the location where the church had been before it was destroyed. Human remains continue to be discovered on the island as recently as 10 years ago. And last summer, some descendants of the Japanese men who died there requested that all remains left on the island be returned to Japan. There doesn't yet appear to be any resolution to this request, but with, with over 2,000 Japanese troops remaining buried there, it would be a logistically complicated operation to say the least. Back in the late 80s, the government of Japan placed World War II memorials in various locations throughout the Pacific. One of these memorials, a 20-foot tall titanium starburst, ended up on Attu in 1987. It was placed on Injuna Hill at the spot of the last bonsai charge led by Yamasaki, and it was intended to memorialize all of the lives lost there, whether American or Japanese. When a group of vets visited the island in 2001 to place a memorial plaque for their lost brothers, they were a bit shocked to see the Japanese memorial. And it has proven to be somewhat divisive among these vets. While some see it as a true expression of regret over events of the war, others would prefer it not be there at all. In the documentary I watched, Red, White, Black, and Blue, we meet veteran Bill Jones, who has spent a lot of time lobbying to have the Japanese memorial removed from the island. Though, from my research, it doesn't appear that this has ever happened. In the summer of 2018, a research ship discovered the stern of the USS Abner Reed off the coast of Kiska. The massive stern had been blown off the ship by an underwater mine in August 1943, killing 71 men in the process. The ship was able to stay afloat and limp home, but the stern and the men had been lost at sea for decades. After the research vessel located the stern in 300 feet of water, they had a wreath-laying ceremony for the men lost there. So it seems likely that as the years go by, more remnants of the ferocious battle will continue to surface. I hope you guys have enjoyed the series. I found it super fascinating. Highly recommend the documentary red, white, black, and blue. It was really good. And yeah, it just gave me sort of a visual to go along with all this dry knowledge I've been learning. And I kind of wish that I could actually visit there one day, but I don't think that just anybody is allowed to go there. I think it's under military control. But that does it for this episode and this series. I'm really happy I got through it. It was fascinating, but I feel like I just took a college class about this because I did so much reading and watching and I learned a shitload. <laughs>
I feel like I'm an expert now, but I hope you guys liked it. But I am looking forward to getting back to a straightforward true crime narrative without, you know, 1,000 characters. So thank you for joining me, and I will see you guys next time. <laughs>